Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want we want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or feel free to reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion at, at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to be sharing some exciting offers and opportunities. And please, as always, feel free to share this program with people who you know who will also find it of interest. I'm real excited to, to introduce today's guest and, and the topic. Um, I, I feel like I know him a lot better than I do, and that's because of his real transparent social media presence. Um, although the truth of the matter is we've become good friends and I have a huge amount of respect for him. Mordechai Yosef ben Avraham is an Orthodox rabbi currently living in Jerusalem. He's originally from Los Angeles and worked in the inter- entertainment field at Warner Brothers Music, uh, at Warner Brothers producing music, film, and TV. Rabbi Mordechai has also had the privilege of learning at some of the most prestigious yeshivot here in Israel with an emphasis on Talmudic law and is a lecturer among thousands and given thousands of presentations on Jewish ethics and morality, inspiring audiences of all background and all denominations. He's really, he's really a great person and a great communicator. But here's the thing. Since this is a podcast, you can't see that Rabbi Mordechai is a black Jew. And unlike many other black Jews, he's not, he wasn't born Jewish. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, his book, because because we're we're literally having the opportunity to get into the mind of the black Jew. The mind of the black Jew is the name of his latest book. Now, in full disclosure, I have not read the book yet. I know the author. I admire him, and that's why we're having this conversation. But I'm really excited to get into this in general, but also in light of some things that have been coming up in current events that we're going to get to. Rabbi Mordechai, it is a delight to see you. I get to see you, but also. Um, but also to have you as as uh, the guest on what now is our, by the way, the 52nd, you're the last podcast of a full year cycle of podcasts that we've been able to host with over 120,000 downloads in the first year. Welcome. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's um, been looking forward to having this discussion with you for a while. So I'm glad we're finally there. And it's an honor to be a part of the culmination of this uh, tremendous cycle that you've been on with uh, this podcast adventure. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fitting cycle. We've spoken in the past about you hopping on conversations relating to, uh, to Dr. King and other things, but I think this one, I'm glad we waited. I'm glad we waited specifically to talk about the launch of your book. L- l- let me jump in for, by way of some personal background. Um, I always like to ask my guests who made Aliyah, who moved to Israel, what motivated them to do so. However, you're moving to Israel also is um, not in tandem, but it comes as part of your of your conversion to, to Judaism. 
Um, can you speak about those issues? How how you started down the path to become Jewish, now a rabbi, and then and then living in Israel? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, th- again, thank you for the opportunity. I'm honored to be here. Um, you know, the thing is, is you know, I grew up in you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and you know, I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of materialism, a lot of success, a lot of material success. And it left me with a lot of questions as I got older, you know, like, what was the purpose of life? Like, what am I, what is my motivation? Like, am I supposed to make more money than my father? Am I supposed to have a bigger house than, you know, my neighbors? Like, what, what was my ultimate thing? And so I, you know, like most people, you know, I got into the business world as, at a young age, you know, I worked in the media space and I was really um, enamored by the creativity and the freedom that the the people in Hollywood had, like the artists and creativity. But I was a business person. I came in on the business side, and, and there's other things. I started a company when I was in college. There's a whole thing like this. But the point is just saying that, um, you know, I had a lot of questions about what was life about, and there was a certain like even emptiness that existed with this world of abundance that I was in. I think people who maybe come from maybe lower economic environments have this kind of drive to make it, you know, and they they kind of like feel it. If I just get to this point, you know, I'm going to have this happiness. I'm going to have this pleasure. But for me, you know, growing up in the suburbs and growing up around so much success, you know, we have the American dream. What next? You know? And so, um, randomly, um, I ran into uh, a friend of mine, it was a girl, and she was at the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles. And when I came to the Kabbalah Center, it was the first time that there was a presentation on, you know, that there is more to life, and that there is a connection between, um, you know, what you're missing and what is in store for you type of a thing. And so that was the beginning of my uh, spiritual journey was there at the Cabal Center in Los Angeles. And then from there, you know, I eventually left um, there, like probably like around 2009. And I went on a journey and, and found, you know, a really good rabbi, Rabbi Hafuta in uh, Los Angeles, who's like, um, he's the Av based in for uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef in uh, California. Uh, let, let, let's, let's translate for guests who don't know. Av Beidin is... Um, uh, in charge of a Jewish religious court. Yeah. 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 And he's um, in the chief rabbi of Israel uh, for the Sephardic side, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef is the one who made him, um, gave him that position. So wow. he's a very, yeah, he's a very respectful, very knowledgeable person. And so um, I met him. He's a tremendous, beautiful person. And so I went through a conversion. It took me like around like two years. It took me like almost a year to find him. Um, but <laughs> You know, just, you know, we meet this guy, this rabbi, this, this whole thing. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it's, 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 uh, it, it, was just, it was just a huge transformation in my life. And when I finished my conversion, I just didn't have the same desires that I had anymore. I didn't have the desire to produce more films and, and shows and music artists and these types of things. And so I kind of like dabbled in politics for a little bit. I ran for... Um, U.S. Congress in 2016, and uh, lost. Yeah, lost in a primary. I ran as actually a Republican, and uh, in Los Angeles, and so um, which is a whole story in itself. And I and uh, eventually uh, after 
after I lost in the primary, some of the rabbis in the community, Rabbi uh, Zakai, who was a rabbi over at Netzach, which is one of the, the largest shuls in Los Angeles, predominantly Persian uh, shul. And he suggested, you know, maybe I should go to yeshiva for a little while and, you know, pick up some skills and then come back, you know, and because I just was thinking, hey, I'm going to run again in 2018, you know, because I just, for me, politics was not about political party was it was that I saw certain things that society and the communities in in Los Angeles were missing. And a lot of it had to do with family values. A lot of it had to do with entrepreneurship. A lot of it had to do with, you know, less per se government involvement and allowing communities to work with each other to create solutions for themselves. And so I just wanted to do that. And so it wasn't so much that I was so connected to the Republican Party as it was that the values that I had were in line with a lot of the original values of the Republican Party. And, and if you're crazy enough to run as a Republican in Los Angeles, no one's going to get in the way of it. So they, just, <laughs> they pretty much allowed me to, um, you know, design my campaign the way I wanted to or whatnot. Long story short, um, you know, so I was just planning on running again in 2018. And the rabbis came to me, uh, Rabbi Zakai and Rabbi Futa, you know, they... Um, said, hey, you know, it's a good idea for you to come to uh, maybe learning yeshiva for a little while. And because I was doing a little bit of outreach for the synagogue that, I, you know, Netzach. And, um, and so I came to yeshiva. I started at Or Sameach. So explain uh, what's a yeshiva for people. For people so yeah, so yeshiva is like basically, um, yeshiva is like one of the, the older traditions in uh, Jewish uh, history. Um, dating back all the way to Abraham and places where it's a place where people would go and study the Torah in depth. And it's like a college almost in a lot of ways, but it's, it, it's specifically focused on a specific type of learning style, specific types of traditions. And you pretty much, you know, depending on your level, immerse yourself for a period of time uh, into that. So I came in 2016 thinking I was going to be there for um, six months, and I end up I end up staying in uh, Israel and learning almost pretty much full time for almost uh, seven years now. Wow, yeah, it's amazing. Um, question: You 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 over you you glanced a little bit over the whole conversion process, but when you when you spoke about it and mentioned how it took you a couple of years, first a year to find uh, find the the rabbi who would ultimately uh, uh, um, uh, not not officiate, but uh, who, who, who would oversee your conversion. Um, Judaism as a tradition, certainly not to proselytize, but also to, to discourage converts. And I'm curious to what extent you I- experienced that at the outset. Well, you know, the thing is, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it, it's, it's a, it's a minhag. It's a tradition that exists in Judaism where people, you know, are disturbed. It's not a halakha. It's not a rule that you have to do that, but it's, it's something to do with that. But, you know, the thing is, you know, my path of spirituality, you know, it's just so many things happen, you know, like there, it was just so many scenarios and people and disappointments and things that were discouraging and times of, you know, I thought about giving up and questioning if I was doing the right thing. And, you know, I went through all these different processes. So I think there's something like cosmic or spiritual that happens to a person that's very sincere, that they're going to go through different processes where they feel discouraged, they feel rejected. And like I said to you, it took me a year to find 
um, Rabbi Hafuta in Los Angeles, and I met a lot of other rabbis in other programs, but they just didn't fit with me or they didn't have the right, you know, I just didn't feel it. You know, I didn't feel that this was the right place for me to be at. So it, it happens, but it's not like there's a team of people that tell you that slam the door in your face. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like I like that analogy. Now, okay, now just as I was writing up the intro, I had this great thought. Um when when someone becomes Jewish, they pick their name. Yours Mordechai Yosef. As compared to someone who was born Jewish like me, I got my name when I was an infant and my parents picked it. So I'm really curious. I was now, you know, first time we've known each other for a while. I know your name. I know who you are. I know about you. But I never asked you the question, why did you you pick two really solid biblical names, Mordechai and Yosef? And, And as I was just typing it, I thought, wow, wait a minute. These guys in the Bible both had something really unique in common. They were both great diaspora Jewish leaders. I'm curious, why did you pick the name and what's your what's your own identity? You know, when, when we have our children born, we give them names and we hope that they will emulate their biblical namesakes. You got to choose the name, Mordechai Yosef. What's your connection with our with our forefathers like that? Yeah, so the name Mordechai was something that it wasn't you know it was suggested like the idea like i, I mean I, I it was ironic because i always just had this affinity with the name i didn't even know so much about the depth of the story of um uh, mordechai and esther you know in the whole scenario and it just so happened that i was at a persian synagogue you know but it just um it was just it was a name suggested but it, it resonated but the rabbi who um inspired um the name, you know, he's, he's, he's Nifter in blessed memory. Um, you know, he showed me that the name itself, Mor in Dechai. So Mor was one of the 11 spices used to cleanse the Holy Temple. Cool. And the word Dechai in, in Aramaic means to cleanse, right? Also, the, the, the word um, in, in, um, in Hebrew, every letter has a specific number value, right? right? So Aleph would be one, Bet would be two, Gimel would be three. So it goes all the way to Tuf, right? And so the the sometimes there's certain combinations that the sages would make connections that this word and this word has the same. Um, if you add them all together, they, they're both the same. So there's a word... Um, uh, sofek, which is like doubt, right? And doubt and more have the same gematria, the same numerical value. So the idea is to say that the name Mordechai means to cleanse doubt. And so the rabbi who gave me the name, he said that every time you hear the name Mordechai, it should remove any layer of doubt that you have about what you're supposed to do in the world. Right. So that was that. That was my introduction. That the name Yosef. Actually, um, I took on the name Yosef um, here in Israel. It wasn't um, wasn't the original. It was just Mordechai ben Abraham in America. Mordechai Yosef ben Abraham here um, in in uh, in, in in the land of Israel. And the you know the name for me you know represented. Like the, the this like the life of Yosef, the the experiences that he had, and and the protection that he had around him, you know. And so I was dealing with different challenges, 
And so suggested maybe you should take on another name. You know, sometimes people utilize names and the energy of the names because they come from the Bible to give a certain strength, a certain protection, a certain, you know, even intelligence and awareness. So the name Yosef was a, was a very big protection. He said, Yosef is protected from, you know, uh, the eye of jealousy, evil eye, eye and like he's protected from these things. And so as I was becoming more in the media and different things like this, uh, through, you know, the press, whatever, um, you know, I was having problems getting married, right? Meeting the right person. And so it was suggested maybe I should take on a name that would add this kind of like additional protection Lovely. around me that if I was experienced to that. Yeah. That, and, and by the way, I should have neglected. It's not in the. It's it's not in your uh, bio that I think in the year that I celebrated 120,000 downloads, you've celebrated uh, becoming married and and uh, no longer having that uh, no longer having that challenge in your life and and fulfilling all the blessings. Yeah, yeah, and and and, the, and even the irony on the whole thing it was like, you know, me and my wife getting married. It was just like. You know, it was like a lot, it was like almost at the end of Corona type of yeah. a thing. And it was still kind of a weird time and inviting people who this, what, what to do. We didn't have that much money. It was in Israel. Our families weren't able to come, this type of thing. But the wedding itself was on Rosh Kodesh Tammuz, which was like a couple of weeks ago. So it was like our one year anniversary. And that is the yard site, the, 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 the death anniversary and the birth of Yosef Asadik. Oh, of, of Joseph. Now that is Joseph Joseph right. that is very cool. I have to. This, wow, I I, I it didn't wasn't think planned. It wasn't planned. We didn't even know until like after the wedding. We looked at it, we're like, whoa, that it was Joseph's, you know, uh, birthday and 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 the day he left his world. Amazing, amazing, and, and, and that in Judaism, it, when when someone is born and dies on the same day, also carries with it with the. Uh, with its special uh, attributes. I didn't know all of this. I know that next time I read the book of Esther, I'm going to really read into Mordechai with that character, with those characteristic traits that you just, that you just shared. That's amazing. Let's, let's jump into your book a little bit. First of all, thanks for sharing that very personal stuff, but let's jump into your book. I love the title, Mind of the Black Jew, the oldest new way of thinking. Why did you write the book? And, and who, before we get into it, and who, who's your primary audience? So um, the title itself, Mind of the Black Jew, I, I, you know, I feel like, you know, one of the challenges of, you know, being African-American is that much of, and I'm going into that before I go into the Jewish aspect, one of the challenges is that, you know, we live in a society where, you know, in a lot of ways, we're kind of like trivialized as people, you know what I mean? Like, we're entertainers, we are kind of like spectacles, we are people who are descendants of slaves, you know, people who are in a civil rights movement. And, and I feel that, you know, oftentimes, you know, people don't necessarily, or, or it's not necessary, it's not, people don't necessarily look at the intelligence of the people who went through these different experiences. You know, when you think about different Black leaders that have come throughout history, you know, whether I agree with their outlooks or not, you have to realize that, you know, African-Americans were denied the ability to read. African-Americans were denied the ability to even congregate, you know, with more than three people at a time. You know, uh, colleges wouldn't allow us in, you know, we were, you know, it's, it's you know, very similar to Jews in, in, in a lot of different parts of history. And so I, I felt like, you know, sometimes in the Jewish world, 
that me being black and even other black Jews, that's more of a thing than who I am intellectually, uh-huh. right? And, and so I wanted to basically make a call and say, hey, what is the mind of the black Jew? Like the, the person who comes from, you know, in essence, slave culture, which is the essence of this Torah, right? Is people leaving slave culture and achieving greatness. You know, what, what, you know, what is the mind of that person? What's the mind of the people like the Nassim Blacks of the world and, and who's a famous Jewish African-American singer or you have Amari Stoudemire, you know, who was a professional athlete who, you know, recently went conversion. What's going on intellectually? Because when we learn about the Jewish sages, it's not just what they wrote. It's about who they were. It's about the times that they were in. It was about the challenges and the adversities that they went, to, that they went through. And the Torah that came from those experiences is was given us as a nation the ability to persevere, to excel, to overcome, and those types of things. So I wanted to bring the intellectual aspect of the African-American or Black experience becoming Jewish into the conversation and and not to you know sideline that point and, and even as you know as a Jewish community you know even there that that aspect I think will create even more unity you know between Jews that come in to the the mainstream fold or Jews that you know will be considered different or a minority within the Jewish world to allow other people who aren't familiar with African Americans or Black people that you know have you know Jews that are from many Jews from Europe you know they didn't interact with anybody because they were they achieved so they received so much abuse from the the nations around them abuse like trauma all types of things all the things they're talking about today in society in terms of health and these types of things and traumatic experiences, Jews have been living that reality. And the same thing for Jews in the Middle East. So there is this kind of very insular attitude that came from survival that exists in the Jewish world. So now we have the land of of Israel and we have the eighth largest economy and we have, you know, one of the most proficient, prolific militaries in, in, in human history. And we can walk around and be proud to be Jews and not worry about people throwing rocks at us and spitting on us and, and, and degradating us, these types of things. So now we're all here together trying to figure it out, right? We're trying to figure it out without a base of Mikdash, without a Mashiach, you know, we, without these things, we're figuring it out. So I think it's incumbent upon, you know, uh, Jews of color, African-American Jews to intellectually contribute to the Jewish fold, to, to, to bring Torah, to bring these ideas, these types of things. So I wanted to give, you know, some kavod to my ancestry, you know. Recognition. Rec- recognition. Recognition. Yeah, recognition. I keep using <laughs> you don't even like you're speaking Hebrew sometimes, you know. Um, you, you give, I want to give recognition, and I wanted to merge that with the blessing that I received by being able to go through a conversion and to take on the yoke of the Torah and, and now live a Jewish life in Israel. So I titled the book, Mind of the Black Jew. Very interesting. So is the audience more for other Jews, for Jews to uh, understand, you know, not just looking at you as a Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Ben Avraham, with, with, you know, as a, as a, from, from a, I, I, I don't, 
I don't mean it in, in, in a pejorative way, but like a stereotypical, oh, hey, that's cool that we have a black rabbi. Or or do you or or are we trying to get into the depth of what that's about? Or are you writing for other audiences as well? Well, you know, the target, the the, the core, I mean, I mean, for sure, Jewish people are going to appreciate it by definition of the title, by definition of it being a rabbi coming from a different perspective, for sure. Um, but the main, the, the main audience I really want to reach is, like, for example, so, so this is the way to explain it. So a couple of years ago, me and uh, this uh, rapper, singer, uh, performer, Nassim Black, uh, we did a, um, a webinar with Toro College, right? Toro College is a Jewish university in New York. And we did it with the dean of Toro College, which is Dr. Henry Abramson. And so Dr. Henry Abramson saw an interview that me and the scene did on one of his new songs or whatever. I interviewed the scene and we just talked about his musical direction, but we talked a lot about a lot of real issues, you know, about being African-American, being Jewish, these types of things. And so he saw that and he told Nassim, he contacted Nassim and said, hey, um, you know, in all of my academic research, there has been no real documentation. He couldn't find a paper written or anything on African-American religious Orthodox Jews, right? Okay. So maybe there could be something, somebody reform or conservative, which, you know, I'm not here to criticize anything, but it's it's different. Um, than Orthodox Judaism, and um, you know, so he, he there was no. There, it's like he said, we. It's like uh, African Americans who are Orthodox. It's like it doesn't even exist in academia. And Dr. Wow. Abramson is a historian, right? That's I mean, he's a historian. So I, when I learned this, I felt it was really important to gear what I was writing for an audience of college students. And professors and researchers um, who were studying religious studies, Judaic studies, uh, Middle Eastern studies, and to give um, a frame of diversity and maybe even uh, under the umbrella of social justice um, perspective on halakhic Judaism. Very good. Excellent. Um, I want to come back to some things, but uh, first let me just take a break for, for a quick announcement here. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information, or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. So I, I, I you know, it's very, I don't think I've ever done an interview with somebody or had a conversation like this who's written a book whose book I haven't read. And so um, you, you, you're enticing me to want to read it. I love where you're coming from. The, 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 I de- never thought of it from the perspective of no historical material on on black orthodox jews or african actually this is an important distinction african-american right because we're going to talk in a few minutes i want to talk about ethiopian jews as well though the title of of the book is the mind of the black jew um on the on the book cover you highlighted it was very interesting the spiritual thought process 
that Jews have, including kosher, Shabbat, and praying three times a day, right? Those are things that are obviously uh, staples of our lives as Orthodox Jews. Why did you choose to highlight those three? I can draw a lot of connections between them, but why did you choose to highlight those three? Um, you know, I, you know, like I, a lot of it was coming from my own personal curiosity before I was Jewish. I remember living in LA and, you know, driving in the car on a Saturday, you know, and, and you see like, you know, these people walking and pushing strollers and wearing black and white. And like, what are they doing? You know, like what's going on? You know, oh, they're Jewish, you know, uh, today is their Sabbath, you know, or, or the idea of, 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 of prayer, you know, uh, what is this, what is this idea, like, what is the thinking process behind Jewish prayer, like, what does that mean, like, what do they do, what are they communicating with, and not just from a textual standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, um, eating kosher, you know, I was just talking to today, it's like, you know, we take eating kosher for granted, but the fact that the world eats a specific way, the world pretty much I mean, obviously, there's a there's a thing of um, you know cleanliness, sanitation, and these types of elements that are incorporated. We have you know uh, FDA that monitors and makes sure you know we're not eating bacteria in terms of you know regular food. But the Torah takes even a greater distinction on certain types of foods and when we should eat certain types of food and how that food has to be prepared and these things. But these things are spiritual. These are all spiritual dynamics. And I think which would maybe give a lot of clarity to a lot of the basis of the book, I use quantum physics as really the basis to discuss this whole adventure of understanding Yiddishkeit. Because quantum physics says that the human eye sees less than 1% of reality. And not only does the human eye not see, it absorbs light particles, signals light particles into the back of the brain, to the, and, 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 and through the back of the brain, Images are formed, and the images that are formed that we're experiencing are a byproduct of genetic information that we have inside of us, and then also uh, our sensories, our five senses, in the different forms of information they're picking up. But quantum physics says, well, there's also a, a 99% reality that's happening around us. We see 1%, but there's a 99% also happening at the same time, and on the scientific level, you could say molecules, right? Molecules, and or or if you bring in string theory, you know, energy waves that are happening all the time around and that we're connecting to. And so I coalesce that to the Torah itself, which says we have a body, which is which we can see with our one percent eye. I can see a body, but then there's a ninety-nine percent as well, which is the soul, right? And I can't see the soul, but it's there. When a person's not here anymore, a person passes away, the body's still here, but the soul is is gone on, 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 a, on a, big, a big part of that. Soul is gone. Some say, you know, aspect of soul is always in the body, but the soul that gives life leaves, you know, that, the, that individual. And so the, the, the Jewish sages take that, those parallels even further, not quantum physics, but the, the, the sages say that in order for a person to achieve true happiness in life, they have to feed their body, right? You have to, you, you, you like, you have to eat, oh. you have to eat, right? You have to do these different things, but then we also have to feed our soul, right? We have to feed our soul as well, and they have to work in conjunction in order to get true happiness. And so this idea of, of 
uh, this idea of, of true happiness and, 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 and fulfillment comes through these connections. So God has given people throughout history different tools and techniques and technologies to be able to connect their soul to this light, this energy that we can't see with our five senses. And not only that, it's given us coordinates, a calendar on certain times as the earth and the moon, they, 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 they rotate and, and, and experience each other in different ways. There's different energies or different influences that, that, that come into the world. For example, the, you know, on the full moon, you know, the magnetic pull of the moon affects the tides in the water, right? In the human body, some people say 80%, 70%, 90%, whatever, there's different, the human body is mostly made up of water. Yeah. And so the same way that the tides are affected by the magnetic pull of the moon, so is the human body. So the point is to say that the 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 book itself analyzes every aspect of it, it, it analyzes Musa, it analyzes the the Talmud, the the, the books of Moses, all, all the way to the teachings of all the way to the teach all the way to the teachings of like Rosh Hashivas like Nosem Finkel who started the Mirror and 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 other uh, Rosh Hashivas that you know of our time that also had outlooks and perspective and I we analyze it from this, the physical aspect and the spiritual aspect and how this principle or this idea connects our soul right. to this infinite light. Neat. So when you're speaking, by the way, another term, Rosh Yeshiva is, uh, is someone who's a Torah scholar who had, who, who's the head of the Yeshiva, who, which is one of these uh, higher, higher institutes of higher Jewish learning. And, mm-hmm. and the mirror, which is you alluded to is one of the um, certainly the most famous historically also here in Jerusalem, but, historically uh as well um what 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 else what else i mean I, this is fascinating i i i'm real interested to grab a copy uh it's on amazon you can get the book right now is on amazon all you have to do is type in uh, mind of the black jew it'll come up great uh, ratify mordecai yosef and abraham you can type that in but mostly mind of the black jew will be the easiest way to um uh connect to it and it great. has support of many rabbis um here in um, jerusalem rabbi breidowitz you know who's a premier speaker and posek here uh judge jewish posek in English. <laughs> but but that and people like nasim black you know everyone um you know who's really involved in this uh discussion of torah um is uh, really endorsing it awesome Awesome. I'm looking forward and I encourage everyone also to, to look it up and grab a copy. Let, let, let's pivot a minute. Um, I, 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 we, we, we've gone back and forth in this conversation um, in, interchangeably using the, 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 the word black and African-American and, and, and they're different. Um, yeah. what, I, I want I wanted to, to dig into that a bit. Um, when I, I still experience, when I travel around and speak in churches and interact with, uh, with, with Christian friends, new ones and, 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 and old, good, old, good old friends, a lot of people don't really know Jewish history. They just know, oh, we're Jewish and, and God's, we're God's chosen people and, and God says to love us and, and they do. And it's really that simple and that's quite refreshing. But a lot of people don't know our history, um, don't know church history as it relates to Jews. Most, I, I don't know if it's fair to say most, but many people 
non-Jews. Think of Jews as just being white, European, and whose families were in diaspora, even though they don't know, recognize so as much that as diaspora that we, they, we came from Eastern and Western Europe. The truth of the matter is most Jews here in Israel are not Western, but in fact, Middle Eastern, coming from North Africa, um, countries of a- Arab countries, uh, we, we call Sephardic Jews. Um, and, and again, that was part of the diaspora, not we didn't originate in those in those lands. And just yesterday, when I came home from my vacation, I was in Jerusalem walking around, and I was stricken by how, in fact, a diverse group of people we are literally the fulfillment of the prophecy of bringing bringing us home from the four corners of the of the world. We we are white and we are black and we're Asian and and and, and everything in, in in between. And one of the most unique communities and one of the ones that's come home on mass and still coming home is the Ethiopian Jews, <coughs> who represent a unique aspect of the of of the Jewish diaspora preceding the the destruction of the second temple. And, and I'm curious, the book, your book is the mind of the black Jew. It's not the mind of the African American Jew. So how do you relate you specifically as a black Jew, uniquely to Ethiopian Jews who were born Jewish, who were, who, and, and black? Yeah, but so, so the thing is, so the term black itself historically was something that first of all, the, the people who identify as being black in America did not congregate as a group and say, we're going to identify ourselves as black. It was a name that was given or a term that, that was a term that was given to, you know, people who were descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Right. Okay. And that, that name progressed, you know, like people say um, African-American now, but there was black and Negro and colored and all these different terms that were used um, throughout American history to describe these kind of like indentured, you know, minority people um, in in, uh, in the United States. And so the term black became something that um, the African-Americans not only, I'm saying African-Americans, that, that, they, that was utilized and expressed in a lot of literature and a lot of art and a lot of music and in, in even political themes, you know, when the fight for equality was happening in the United States. So that name was something that we were given, but we utilized that name to identify ourselves and our needs. Because of America, the term Black and people identifying themselves as Black I feel became very famous. So now you have people around the world who feel that, you know, they have a similar complexion, refer to themselves as black, but Ethiopians are Ethiopians, right? We call black. Excellent, excellent. There's no identity for, you know, us in America other than whatever we were given by the state or the government, you know, federal government, right? So so even the term African-American, I think there was a small uh, group led by Jesse Jackson, I think it was in 1989, I think it was 1989, that came up with the term African-American. What the thinking was behind it, I don't know, but you could Google it, Jesse Jackson, African-American, you could see the whole, you know, discussion around it. But the point is just saying that, so you have Black, as we understand in North American, and you have postmodern Black. Excellent. And so post Postmodern black is a term that, because of the bigness of America and the brand and the influence of pop culture and political themes and even education, 
a lot of other people in Africa will refer to themselves and say, hey, I'm a black man. But they're not. This guy's from Congolese. You're, right. you're, you're from Congo. This person is from Ethiopia. This person is from, you know, Cameroon. This person is from, you know. So these these terms um, are whatever. But the, I would say that Ethiopians, if they decide to refer to someone as black, it's more of a postmodern concept because Excellent. their identity is uh, already in place for thousands of years. Excellent. Do, so, thank you. I, I so appreciate you, you, your clarification because it even kind of uh, scratches away at the surface of my, um, I, I, I don't want to say ignorance, but I'll stick with it. My ignorance or not thinking through the subject um, at all, but you're right. They're, they're, they don't, yeah, they're not, yeah, that, that's excellent. Um, I, I feel that's tremendous. So the, the fact that you have the same skin color isn't a isn't a uh, uh, th- there's not a, there's not that doesn't necessarily have an ethnic connection. No, right. Uh, w- which, by the way, goes back to my wisdom as a young man when I applied to college and they asked me to identify my race. And I think at the time there was a much shorter menu of options of racial identifications, but I always check off the box other maybe that's what got me accepted to college because i i checked off other um but I, I i consider myself a member of the human race and we are all different ethnicities uh within that and you've just helped i think in a tremendous way um to highlight also specifically that your book is about your experience as a uh black american but a very different identity, albeit someone who's coming from the outside, like myself, will make the mistake of saying, uh, well, you're all black and therefore isn't there a unique identification. But that's not that's that's a fallacy. It's inappropriate. So thank you for that. Yeah. And even uh, interacting with, you know, Ethiopians and other, you know, groups, I think there's Sudanians here, there's, you know, all different types of People sure. here in Israel, not everyone is even Jewish, you know, there's just Correct. people you know, being here. And, um, you know, we're just very different people. Yep. You know I mean, we're very different people culturally, even physically, you know, there's it's a different body type and structure. And, but they're tremendous people and have, you know, tremendous wise people and, you know, you know, like beautiful people, great looking people. Um you know, it's it's uh it's it's a beautiful thing. I mean, and they're very much inspired by African American culture. You know, the Ethiopians and, and most Black people around the world are very much inspired by the the narrative of African Americans and fighting for equality. It's like it's almost like the Black Black people in America created a blueprint for people in you know challenged environments around the world to kind of like assimilate and have a sense of value in a sense of, you know, they, their desire for justice, their desire for equality, their desire to, to integrate, to be accepted. They draw from a lot of the African-American experiences, whether it's through Martin Luther King, whether it's through even things today like Black Lives Matters, you know, you see those things popping up even here in Israel, you know, when there were certain issues, the Ethiopian community had with the police force here and different yeah. things. so so whatever so it's it's a very it's a very uh, interesting thing being a black american and seeing the impact 
that uh, we've had on the entire world, being a very only 13% of the United States. Amazing. Um, uh, just to take off on another really interesting point, when we're speaking of Black Africans, typically, I think, uh, the, the communities with a plural are very tribal. And so they're, so that's their, that you, you, you can pick a, uh, a country, uh, Rwanda or, or, or Ethiopia or Cameroon, you mentioned, uh, Nigeria and uh, Kenya and on and on. But within those countries, there, there are many tribal influences. And what's also unique in terms of the Ethiopian Jewish community is that the, the, many of those who are still in Ethiopia and hopefully slowly coming home, uh, to, to wrap up that chapter of diaspora Jewry you know, are, are the descendants of those who were forced to convert to Christianity, um, uh, centuries ago. And, and now they're coming back to Judaism, which is amazing. But what's also interesting and in underscoring the tribal nature is that even those who converted hundreds of years ago, were still kept aside because the the country was the community there in Ethiopia was so so tribal that even the new Christians weren't accepted as Christian. They were still kept kept aside as um, I think the pejorative w- phrase was falasha, people who who were who were not accepted as Christians. But it, it's for a much deeper conversation. I want to take a ha- another half a second break uh, for for another announcement and come back and use some of, some of your own insight as a as an African-American Jew. If you're a parent like me, you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids. But there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing, online pornography. As kids spend more and more time online, they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates. By age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious, lasting consequences, even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123 at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. So recently there was a story just, just before we began uh, plans to, to um, have this conversation. There was a story of a Black American woman who's an employee of a, a, what we believe is a major American Jewish organization, neither her name nor the organization for which she works um, was mentioned or has been publicized so far. And she was singled out. She apparently was visiting Israel was singled out at Ben-Gurion Airport for high-level, even very detailed and intrusive security screening. And, and she wrote something, um, I'm not sure to whom she wrote it, but it's been picked up by the American Jewish community and now a little bit in the Israeli press, that she felt that she was singled out because she was Black and that it was a racist 
um, thing. Now, you you probably don't know more than I, other than what we've read in the media here. Um, we we've read through her eyes or what's been um, publicized about her experience. I have my take on what may have gone through there, but I'm curious. Here you are. You're an Orthodox rabbi, African American, Israeli Jew. You wear a lot of a lot of hats, or as we or or, or, or a lot of kippas. What's your thought? What's your take on what we know about this experience? This woman being uh, now, I use the word profiled not in the pejorative way that is used in America, but as what happens here in security. People are profiled. Um, I know that can come with a with a double-edged sword, but what's your take on, on, on this story? You know, the thing is, you know, with Israel, you know, as from a state standpoint, they're in a very unique and vulnerable position, right? Because they're emerging as, you know, a world power in a time that public opinion determines how trade is conducted, how business overall is conducted, how you know humanitarian um, aid is is distributed? How you know just how all most functionalities of nation state to citizen, nation state to other nation, you know those interactions. You know it's it's in a time where public opinion is at an all time high. You know, and so Israel has a lot of enemies. I mean, if you could imagine when America revolted against King George, right? In, in the 1700s, right when they when they when they decided that they were going to go against and they were going to create the, the the Declaration of Independence, could you imagine what the world would be saying about these Americans if we had social media, right? Mm-hmm. Right, like how dare they? How disrespectful? How you know disconnected? These people, no one should pay attention to them. What they're doing, they're anarchists. All these types of you know things that ultimately grave gave rise to one of the greatest ideas, you know, in human history, which is, you know, the, America. And so the, you know, Israel growing in that same way, and Israel's growth is biblical, right? Because all great nations have come and gone. But the promise that God has had that Israel will will will, will rise and will fall and will rise again, you know, um, is is something that as Jews, we hold dear to us, and, we're in, and for us, we're witnessing it now. But in terms of how the world sees it, they, you know, they have an opinion. You know, the same discourse that they have about Israel is the same way they would have about a pop star, you know, or uh, or a sporting team, or some a news article, or whatnot. So, with that being said, there's been people that of all different backgrounds that have come to Israel and have created false narratives, you know what I mean? And have and used those false narratives to affect the country in, in, in very, you know, in negative ways, you know, whether it's our relations with other nations or, you know, our ability to engage other nations. That's why the Abraham Accord is so important because it, it's showing that the narrative that was promoted by many of the, the kings and rulers in the Middle East was not connected to people who were on the ground, you know, people who wanted to do business, people who wanted to create unity, people who wanted to engage with Israel, you know. And there, there's a famous uh, midrash, which is um, a teaching in Judaism that talks about 
that you know God went to all the different nations and yeah. asked them if they want if they wanted to carry bring the Torah down, right? And you know, every some people said, "Oh, we like the Torah, but this we have a problem with this, we have a problem with that," you know. And they decide, "No, oh, we're okay the way we are. It's okay," you know. <laughs> and the Jewish people ultimately said, "No, give us the Torah. We 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 don't even fully understand it, but we'll do it and we'll figure it out later, right?" And 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 that's that's who we are. But the sages also say within those nations that majority said no, there was a minority that wanted to take the Torah and wanted to, you know, be a part of it. So I think we could take that structure and apply it to what we see in the world today. We see a lot of, you know, people at top, you know, rulers, dictators, you know, um, you know, even presidents, you know, whatever, that, um, you know, have given a narrative that was anti-Israel, that was, oh, Israel's a problem, and Israel's this, Israel's that, because that's the oldest game in the book, right? Blame someone else for your problems and, and, and keep control of your population in that way. So there's people within those nations that want to connect to Israel, that want to connect to the Jewish people, who see through the lies and see through the manipulation. But Israel's in a position where they don't know who's who. Right. The guy, the person's coming over here. Is that person connected to wanting to keep this narrative that's completely untrue going? Or is this one of the righteous people of that other nation that wants to help? So I think a lot of the what they would call interrogation and in 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 um you know looking at what's going on or why things are happening or who are you and where you're coming from, you know. Is coming from that place, not from a place of discrimination. You know, what African Americans experience from what people who are defined as white people in America, you know, in the South, in the Midwest, in these different areas, that was discrimination. That Correct. was, but over here in Israel, this is this is national security. You know right. what I'm saying? This is public policy. These are these are different issues. And so I think sometimes African Americans specifically when we come here or deal with, you know, Israel or, or, or some of the more, um, uh, more um, um, aspects that are the more defensive aspects of the culture, we can interpret that as being, you know, racist or discriminatory or uh, giving us flashbacks from what we experienced in, 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 uh, in America and even with the Israeli-Palestinian issue. It's like, you know, they come to people who have who are enemies of Israel, they come to Black people and say, hey, the same thing that the Palestinians are dealing with is what you guys dealt with as Black people in America. And see, look at the Ashkenazi, white-looking European Jew, and look at the dark-complected uh, yes. uh, um, um, Palestinian and you see what's happening there in, in the in the Jew is in this big tank and the Palestinians throwing rocks. This is similar to you. And that's not the case. Right. It's not the case. The, and I just I feel it's important to say this. The Palestinian people, the Muslims in Palestine, the Christians in Palestine, they're being persecuted by these organizations. They're being used as as cannon fodder for political and economic agendas. Hamas is a three billion dollar organization. These are huge economic mechanisms. And, 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 and what we see, 
uh, in, in Israel, and that's not to say there aren't resistance movements that exist among them. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is the vast majority that I've seen living in East Jerusalem and traveling around this land for the last several years, most people just want to live regular lives. They want to work, right. they want to be, they want to work. Whatever. So anyways, the point is just saying that I think that the lenses of analyzing behavior in any country has to be understood from the position of that country itself, and even more so with a small country like Israel with less than 10 million people, you know, um, surrounded by a very hostile environment, you know, we have to take on our new lenses and not use the same lenses of what we experienced in North America to understand why right. um, the airports are intense at times. Yeah, well, the, and by the way, I just want to, first of all, underscore the, what you just said, that the security protocol at the airports and in general, look, when people come here, they'll see they'll see typically old men sitting at the entrance to every every entrance to every mall checking checking uh, to see if someone's uh, armed in any way. Not that you can't go into a mall and buy a knife, but but people are checking and, and that's and that's profiling, you know. But there is that; it does exist at the airports. It's a whole different, it's a whole different thing. And that's why when I read this woman's story, first of all, I felt for her. Uh, I felt I, I I was stuck at a European airport recently, where I I thought I wrote to my wife at that moment. I thought I was about to be arrested and and miss my flight, and I was very stressed by that. So I certainly felt for this woman's situation but when i read that she was attributing it to racism i thought that that was a little bit uh, 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 not necessarily false that may that doesn't mean that the person who was doing the security screening didn't find it improbable that a black woman in america was working for a major american jewish organization and didn't understand that and that's legitimate to not understand that because we come from the prism through which we did, but I'm reminded of two stories. One, several, a dozen years ago, maybe, I once was escorting a, a, a friend of mine, a pastor, um, who who was going back, flying back to the states by herself. And I said, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be profiled up the wazoo as soon as you get to the airport. At least I'm gonna park the car, and I'm gonna walk you in. I'm gonna stand online, and we're gonna continue our conversation so they see that you have me as an Orthodox Jewish Israeli friend. Now, I don't know if that helped, but she didn't get profiled the way this uh, recent story. And, the, and and people are trained in security to pick apart those stories, those people who look improbable and maybe don't belong or, or, or might not fit in or have an ulterior motive. And, and that's not a, that's not a um, ideological one. It's, we're talking about strictly physical security. And then there's the story you probably, it was before you, probably before you were Jewish, but probably know of the story. There was an Irish woman who was flying to Israel to meet her Palestinian Arab boyfriend who happened to be the father of the baby that was in her uterus at the time. And they were going to meet up in Jerusalem, but he told her because he's a Palestinian Arab, he can't fly to Ben Gurion Airport. He was going to fly to Jordan and meet her across the way, and okay, normally that's probable. But he apparently put a bomb—not apparently he did—he put a bomb in her suitcase that she didn't even know about. So people who are unsuspecting are those 
are what they're looking for. And, and I always feel bad. I tell people security, whether you're coming from America, coming from Europe, coming from Asia, get, get on a plane to Israel, you're going to have a high, higher level of security. There's no question about it. And the same way leaving here, because you, nobody, nobody knows really who, who might, you might have interacted with. And I and I just wanted to get a sense. Go ahead. Yeah, you were about to say something. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to just throw one point. In one of the tactics that's being that's been used against Israel is to create these kind of like shadow type organizations that are quote unquote Jewish. Oh, but they're but they're, <laughs> and they're not and they're not really Jewish. You know, meaning that they they don't have an interest in you know improving anybody's condition here in Israel, Jewish or non-Jewish, they have a political agenda of defaming Israel and hurting the infrastructure or whatnot, but they call themselves Jewish. And then they have people who aren't Jewish, and, they, and I'm not here to criticize anybody, but there's certain movements that call themselves Jewish where the people don't have to observe, like, uh, um, observe anything. You know, they don't have to we talked about Shabbat and these different culture. They don't understand Judaism that way. To them, it's just uh, a point of an agreement or an understanding that they have, and they can make it whatever that they want. And so those people have been um, utilizing this broadness of their definition of Judaism to justify their attacks to at, at the Jewish world, and they've used a lot of African Americans. And so, when you come over and say, "Oh, well, I'm a part of the Jewish media organization or whatever," you have to check that out because it's not. Um, yeah, it's a lot of tricks, and I would even expect the same. I wouldn't. I, I mean, myself been living here for these years. I wouldn't be. I mean, it's it's a problem after you travel. You know, fifteen, sixteen, twelve hours. I get it. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to <laughs> deal with drama at the airport on any level. You know what I mean? And so I get it. But at the same time, I just wouldn't be offended if me being questioned and being a rabbi and living here and studying Torah and these type of things. It's just like I, I mean, it's just like I get it. I mean, it's 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 um. I mean, it's not easy for Israelis to get into America. You know what I mean? Right, so it's just, right, right. It's Excellent. Just saying that, Excellent. You know, so it's just saying that, I mean, it's just, can we can we do better? Yes. Can Is there ways that we can improve the system so these types of situations for the right people don't happen? A hundred percent. Does Israel, a country that is dependent on tourism, want people to have those experiences and, and want the positive media? A hundred percent. This is a this is a place where you know tourism is a huge thing. So discriminating, you know, discriminating against um, discriminating against um, um, anybody's it's not good for business. So it's not right. the goal. Right. But can we do better? A hundred percent. Well, I, I, by the way, I, there, there, there's a lot more that we could talk about, and I, maybe after I read the book, we'll mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come back and and do that. Um, yeah. But I think it's a great way of summarizing <clears throat> kind of why. Why you said before you wrote the book to give people a, a, a different prism through which to work and, and also something historical, but it's great because you also, who you are, not just because of how you look, but your life experiences. And of course, as a lot of that is because of how you look, um, is, is unique. And, and to be able to say something as concise as you just did, where even those 
just coming to have a good time to experience Israel, whether it's on a religious pilgrimage or high-tech business, should understand and appreciate that Israel still were in a state of war. There are still people who want to, to harm us and destroy us, and therefore there are higher levels of security. And it's maybe too sim- oversimplified uh, to say, if you're a terrorist, you're, you're going to expect to be profiled and, and looked to see if people can catch you. And if you're a not, and you show up at any airport looking to come to Israel or leave Israel, and you're not a terrorist and you don't want to do harm, then you should just be saying thank you to the security people who are making sure that the plane that you're on is not getting blown up that day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and through no, and through no, no malice, through no negative intentions, but there are people with those negative intentions who are looking to find the weaknesses. And yes, we should, we can do better. We should do better, uh, both because of tourism, but also because we, we, there's no reason to have people, uh, coming to Israel or leaving here with a bad experience. But I, 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 I suspect that probably sometime shortly afterward, and again, your perspective is different and unique and I'm and appreciative. Um, we may find out who this person is and what organization she works for. And yeah, maybe I'm not, I'm not j- judging as far as religious observance, but sure, there are organizations where, where people are, call themselves a Jewish organization, but they're not really necessarily so pro-Israel. <clears throat> and, um, or and, pro-Torah. Of, of course, of course. Um, wow. Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Ben Avraham, what, first of all, what a delight to connect with you again. It's not always easy when we're, when we're running our lives. So I, I don't, I don't, um, this is not a pass for us getting together in person and catching up on a, on a personal level, but what a delight to have you to share you and your insight and your, and, and, and what you're about and your new book. Um, Mind of the Black Jew. I want to encourage everyone, even though I haven't read it uh, yet, I, I want to encourage everyone else to to check it out. Um, I, I think it probably will be a really lovely co- continuation of this dialogue, and maybe we'll uh, we'll continue that back up. Um, thank you for joining us. I want to just come back and share a couple of quick final announcements. I joke this year that if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward. Well, this year, every month, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been offering a special gift. Each month, we're giving away a volume, what I call from Jonathan's bookshelf. Since by full disclosure, we don't know, I haven't read the book. It's not literally from my bookshelf, but it's coming with the highest recommendations. Nonetheless, this month, uh, we will be giving a copy of Mind of the Black Jew to somebody who goes to the inspiration from Zion social media and likes and follows and shares this. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we will select one winner at random. So somebody this month is going to be getting a copy of Mind of the Black Jew. We're grateful that this podcast for the last year has been sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and want to pop in and thank them, for helping make programs like this possible. I know that will be a delight. And also thank you to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donation. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com 
We always would love to hear your comments and questions and specifically invite you to send questions uh, about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Today, I suppose we kind of double dip. We had a rabbi and spoke about Judaism and other topics as well. Please share this program who will find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. Thank you and God bless you. Hallelujah,